Back in the 60s, because of the housing situation and the expanding population within our blood tribe, you know, uh, somebody came in with the uh, idea that let's introduce town sites, you know, where we have cluster homes, you know. And I think during that during that period, from then on, as as we as the town sites began to grow, we began to see an influx of uh, uh, violence family violence, uh, the notion about gang-related activities, you know, uh, truancy in the schools, you know, just a whole bunch of so social issues, you know. So back then, you know, not blaming anybody, but it was lost, uh, it was more cost-effective to have homes situated together, infrastructure, water, those type of things, you know, but we didn't realize that what we were establishing was an internal ghetto that was going to be uh, hit hard by alcohol, drugs, and stuff like that. As CEO of the Blood Tribe Department of Health, we did a study. We did a, stu a small study with uh, internally. We also gathered the same emergency uh, information from the nearby clinics and the hospitals and stuff like that. And we had, a, uh, we had charts in comparison, you know. And we, we, out of the uh, studies, we begin to realize that uh, things like diabetes, uh, heart diseases, heart disease were very chronic and they, they were on the rise. We, begin, we began to see a lot of the chronic things with alcoholism, family violence, you know, that, that are being uh, brought into the emergency, you know. And Dr. Tailfeathers, you know, we have carts in just, uh, just uh, boundaring our reserve, you know. And I would suspect that 75% of the, if not higher, of our emergency vis visits are by our First Nations. And a lot of them go back to uh, alcohol-related type of things, drug-related type of things, violence and gang-related uh, type of things. So again, perhaps I've, I've sort of uh, been trying to stick handle to the question is, what are we going to do? Mm -hmm. Well, we, we are trying everything that, uh, uh, that we can build together. We've asked all of the uh, departments, all of the uh, uh, frontline workers, including uh, medical doctors, the professionals, to put our heads together to come up with a plan. And uh, basically what, what we're finding out is that uh, we cannot isolate the drug itself. We cannot isolate addiction itself. We have to go back to one part our, our spiritual part. We have to provide employment opportunities. We have to provide uh, housing. Uh, we have to address the housing situation. We have to provide uh, uh, family counseling, you know, to young parents. We have to keep our kids in school. And uh, the bottom line, after everything is said and done, we probably have to uh, tell our people, you know, that the opportunities may not be here. We may have to start going to places like Lethbridge and Calgary and establishing our, our livelihood out there as well, too. So maybe I'll stop there for now. Do you now. see delivering services in Lethbridge, say, as a blood tribe? Do uh, you see that down the road? If uh, d down the road, yes, definitely. I know the uh, tribe outside of uh, east of Calgary, Sikshika, they've got their satellite stations and uh, satellite uh, departments in Calgary. Uh, it's an extension of, of their on-reserve uh, services. You know, uh, just uh, uh, six months ago, six months ago, we met with the uh, Lethbridge City Council. We have the opportunity to purchase land as part of our, our government uh, agreement on, on one of the agreements that we have to purchase uh, land in Alberta and we can con convert it into sort of a reserve status, you know. An urban so, reserve. Urban reserve. So part of our deliberation uh, with the uh, with, uh, uh, left the city council was to let them know, you know, a lot of our people, uh, perhaps uh, over 2,000 of our members are living in the city of Lethbridge. And a lot of them have migrated because they don't have uh, homes here. They don't have jobs here. A lot of them, uh, perhaps uh, their education uh, will not help them to uh, find jobs in the city. So against part of that whole social uh, issue, that whole social problem, again, is, is starting to develop in Lethbridge with, with our people. 
our discussions with the city council is to let's uh, uh, let, let's act together. We we can work uh, through this. We can uh, establish our satellite offices, our professional buildings there, you know, for counseling, uh, things for uh, furthering their education, perhaps careers, employment, you know, those type of things, you know. So we're just at, at the uh, discussion stages right now. Mm-hmm. Now. Uh of course, this is, we're watching a television here, but this is not television. The, we're seeing you, and you're seeing us, and this is interactive. And this this uh, subject that we're dealing with is uh, definitely a difficult one all over, and I think uh, it's fair to say in southern Alberta it might be especially difficult subject. And you might uh, have had it, you know, talks about it in private uh, in your family. Uh, this really is a moment when. Uh, you have the people who really are in a position to answer some of the hard questions right here before you. So um, I'd, I'd uh, encourage uh, some uh, exchange here, some interactivity on the World Wide Web. Hello? Not my there yet. Takes a minute to. Hey, uh, I just had a question for Chief Weaselhead there. You spoke about your 11 years at the residential school and how some of your friends were more susceptible to falling into that dependency. And I think you said they were lost or didn't make it out of there. Uh, What or whom do you credit with helping you avoid those, those pitfalls? Well, uh, In short, uh, I think sports did. Uh, I'm not saying that I'm a gifted gifted athlete, but I, I did in my last year of high school. I did uh, I did uh, request to go to Calgary to finish off my high school, and of course I've never never been off the reserve. You know, uh, a real uh, culture shock for me going in, in, into Calgary, but. Uh, Sports-related, uh, family support, you know, those type of things, continuous linkages. And I guess there's uh, perhaps maybe a, a self-drive in me, knowing that uh, if I continue to stay on the reserve, continue to do what my friends are doing, and, and perhaps then it, it, it was uh, a lifestyle that was the norm, you know, go, go partying, go drinking, you know, do all those kind of things, you know, that, uh, you know, that doesn't build uh, responsibility, character, or those type of things, you know. So again, I uh, went to school. There's a little bit, uh, something in me that told me, well, I think you've got to expand yourself. And education is perhaps the, the, the biggest tool, you know, uh, that I learned early in life is going to be my livelihood, you know. So with that, you know, com- completing high school, going to college, and stuff like that and getting into the uh, job situation. The other thing that really helped me was uh, in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, again I moved off to reserve for approximately seven years and had the opportunity to work off the reserve to, uh, to experience life off the reserve, you know, and beginning to understand that uh, I'm not so... Uh, being First Nation uh, doesn't necessarily mean that I'm different from anybody else, you know, so that uh, I do the same things, uh, education, uh, work, you know, uh, similar values, those type of things, you know. So the whole experience off the reserve is perhaps the biggest uh, uh, experience, the best experience that I received coming uh, to this position. Actually, I was thinking as you're talking about uh, good things in your life, so your better half is right here, so and your son is here too. So, it's, uh, and this is Rhonda. Yes, Weaselhead. I had no intentions of sitting in. <laughs> I thought very important. Um, the question that you asked, um, Chief, is that um, one of the things that he didn't mention that I think is very important was that. At a very young age, um, in his, I guess, early adulthood, 
he lost um, both of his parents in a car accident and was the oldest of nine children. So consequently, felt a responsibility to his siblings to raise them, and I believe that that had a big, a big impact on him being strong and coming through for his family. Thank you. Other. Uh, Hi. <laughs> Hi. Uh, my name is Jennifer, and uh, well, my family was a foster home. And I took in children for probably 10 years. And for eight of those years, I had the same family with me where it was uh, a parenting intervention because the mother was an alcoholic and we had taken in these children. Now, do you feel that, like, I don't know, how do you feel about foster homes? And should we have, should we be taking them in? Quite ironic that I just stepped in. I happened to um, to um, take care of the foster care program here for the blood reserve. And um, prior to it, uh, our tribe giving delegation, I did the same thing in Lethbridge uh, for the blood tribe for a period of eight years previous to that. How do, how do we feel about foster homes? Uh, can I? A question again? Work. Okay. Uh, well, my question is, uh, is it us interfering or are we, like, is it wrong to raise them in our culture rather than in theirs, their original culture? Um, no, I definitely don't think that it's interfering. I think that um, our non-native neighbors are still very needed. The intention of Blood Tribe taking over uh, child welfare was so that we could have children brought back to the reserve and raised in native foster homes. That's, that's an ideal. However, we realistically realize that that's not going to happen 100% for various reasons. Um, there are reasons such as um, bio families being in the community, um, that we might not be able to have certain children placed in a reserve foster home. Uh, another reason is that we just don't have enough reserve foster homes. I guess one of the biggest reasons that, that we need to keep contact with the outside is that we don't, we have a lot of high needs, special needs children, and we don't have the amount of resources that we need at this time to foster children. No, I, I definitely don't think that you're interfering, but I think it's important that they always know where they come from and that they have that ability to connect on a regular basis with their culture. And part of, uh, Jennifer, part of your experience of this, it must uh, cause you to want to learn about um, Aboriginal culture generically or the specific nationality that your your foster children are, if they're Cree, if they're Blackfoot, if they're Haida, if they're Inuit. Um, do you, um, have you found that you're pulled to try to explore that so you can grow with, with your children? Um, with your foster children? Well, um, we know that they're uh, from Cree. Most of the uh, natives in our region um, are. Uh, I'm from northern... Oh, we're in the middle of Blackfoot country here. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm from northern BC. Oh, I see. It's yeah. a, a different region. <laughs> and yeah. uh, we try to get them involved as much as possible in what we can. Uh, but there isn't much in there. I mean, it's a small community. Mm -hmm. If I can expand on on, on the response, I think uh, it's it's always a, a good rule of thumb that uh, our, our kids are given the opportunity to know their identity, and because in my experience, a lot of the kids. Uh, do come back, try to uh, 
reach their biological uh, parents. They have a lot of questions. Uh, just most recently, about six months ago, I had a family from Edmonton with uh, two boys that uh, appeared uh, at our front office. And the boys were very, very much interested in who, who, who they were, what they were about, what our culture is. And I think we, we try to encourage that. Uh, I've seen many of, of our, our kids that are outside that uh, have uh, grown up to be very responsible adults, you know, because of the uh, livelihood, you know. But again, I think it's important to just give them the opportunity to decide themselves, you know, at, at a later life, if they want to know uh, who uh, their parents are, where they come from, and their culture. This is another one of those uh, patterns that seems to be quite broad in the world. Um, Aborigines in Australia, uh, many of them were taken away from their biological families. It was a kind of policy. Uh, they referred to themselves sometimes as the stolen generation, and it's a major issue in Australia. And some of those children uh, had horrific experiences, essentially were made into, were abused and made into sex slaves. Uh, it's a it's a very uh, major issue in Australia. There's the storybooks, which hundreds of thousands of people have signed. Uh, the Howard government won't, however, uh, sees this as uh, liberal um, excessiveness. Um, this uh, you know th this course is about globalization, and we're talking about very specific things in this community as we should. Um, but I know that uh, Esther is, uh, you know, I'm, I've learned a lot about the fourth world from you. I called my book The American Empire in the Fourth World. And, and I know that uh, you were there in the, uh, in the days when that concept was, uh, was uh, very, very prominent. And, and uh, it brought together indigenous peoples from around the world. And I know that uh, although you've gone into very specific scientific study to become a medical doctor, that uh, you've never uh, lost your connection to this uh, broader picture, this emerging pic picture of indigenous peoples uh, coming together and, and, and sharing experiences and trying to uh, change the course of world history in a sense. Uh, um, the fourth world was an idea we're not going to accept, you know, to be pulled into capitalism or communism as, th as if these two options are the only options available. We're indigenous peoples. We have all, we have our own traditions, our own heritages. Yes, we want to employ modern technology. We want to uh, go into the future with the full capacity to access all the, all the uh, instruments of, of uh, well-being that we can, but we want to do it in our, from the basis of our own inspiration, from our own history, from our own philosophy. How, how are you uh, seeing the fourth world, and how, how do you understand it? How, you know, I know you moved back and forth over much of your life to Norway and are deeply involved with the Sami indigenous people to this day in, in Norway, as your children are. Uh, That's a big question, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I, think, I think that the picture is... Um, the picture is very familiar to almost all indigenous people and the history, I, I mean, I, I named dates to you and occurrences in history, but in general, those same things happen to most of the indigenous people in the world. And um, the, the pattern that I'm seeing and the pattern that I've, that I've learned is that, <clears throat> is that there's, I mean, because, because of the, um, the profession that I'm in, the pattern that I'm seeing is that you know, all the indigenous cultures that have been, um, that have the same or similar experiences to us have the same types of diseases and the same problems. Um, I did spend um, about eight years uh, among the Sami people in, in northern Norway, um, the Laplanders, as some people would call them, the reindeer herders. And their experience is similar to ours, only they were not uh, recognized in a treaty process. Um, they're they're not they are recognized racially as different from the other Scandinavian people, but people from 
I mean, people myself, as myself would go over there and think that everybody is Caucasian because they're all Caucasian. There's no difference in skin color, although the, the Sami people are dif different racially than the, um, than the Scandinavians. So there's a couple of issues there. One is that the racism is still existent even though they appear to be the same race as the, colonized, the colonizing forces or colonizing population. And the other thing too is that their land, um, their land title was not recognized as ours is, and so they didn't have a established treaties. They were forced into um, into assimilation within the within the um, populations that that um, colonized them. The problem is that their, or the problem for the colonizers is that the um, the uh, the land was too harsh for any kind of colonial or industrial development. So the best thing for that land was to continue to reindeer herd and, um, and to live off of fishing and the, and the land that was there. So it was very difficult to colonize it because it was really nothing to gain from the land. So the people were allowed to live they, as they had traditionally. Um, their health, their level of health is actually much better than ours and partly because there wasn't an interruption in their lifestyle because the colonizers could not bring a different lifestyle because it's so definitely that's one of the differences. Um, currently, I'm going to, um, or not currently, in about um, about 13 or 14 days, I'm going to Tibet, and the same question arises in my mind of um, Tibet. I'm going to visit some villages in Tibet that are indigenous villages. Um, that are currently under the um, under the um, Chinese um, uh, regime, and um, definitely they have health problems that are similar and some things that are different to ours. And my question is still going to be, you know, how did they get to where they are, and what are the effects of colonization on their on their health? And um, so I'm I'm quite interested in in seeing the outcomes among indigenous people around the world and, um, you know, what makes the difference? What, you know, what is it that makes the difference in the population? I wonder, uh, I know there's uh, some folks, one, uh, one for sure, um, who, um, who are Chinese. And of course, uh, many times I find myself asking as I think about China, you know, how is the situation of Tibetans who, who are a distinct nationality with their own very uh, elaborate, deep, deep history. Of course, the Dalai Lama is, in a sense, the head of state of, of, of Tibet. I ask myself, uh, you know, how is the Chinese relationship to the Tibetans different say, than, say, Canada's relationship to the Blackfoot? I mean, obviously, Canada is exploiting the lands of the Blackfoot taking advantage of, of its control of, of, of those territories and all of Canada and all of North America. In fact, all of the Americas is the lands of indigenous peoples. There's not one government in the Americas that you can say is fully an Indian government, although uh, Venezuela, certainly Hugo Chavez, is expressing that side of himself. Uh, Mexico takes a great deal of its uh, uh, symbolism from, from indigenous peoples and sees itself as very much a mestizo, a kind of Métis identity. Um, but if we could, uh, I don't want to put anybody on the spot, but I know there is some, uh, someone in, the, in, in a position to talk a, a little bit about Tibet and China. And uh, if uh, that isn't to, to unfold right at this moment, um, I've got, uh, we're looking right at you, uh, James Moore and Arlene. James and Arlene uh, are coming uh, to Lethbridge from Flin Flon. And in fact, uh, we've talked about uh, uh, this, uh, the possibility of getting us together and, and discussing these issues. And, and um, you know, I must say, uh, to the two of you, this really does, uh, I look at this as one of the most significant moments in my experience uh, teaching at the University of Lethbridge. I mean, none of us got to this position in a day, and, I, and you're the people who I met when I early arrived here. Um, I'm just meeting uh, 
James and Arlene, but I know these issues, uh, living among First Nations people, trying to, in a sense, adapt to and assimilate uh, First Nations wisdom, history, um, is a big part of your life. Um, uh, and Arlene, we talked about, you know, the positive, um, you, you were emphasizing a sense that we've, we've got to emphasize the positive elements of, are, of what are, are going on. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I, I, I would be uh, interesting at this point if you could uh, uh, break beyond the subject of the specifics of the diabetes program to the larger picture of how you see the kind of future unfolding. Can you hear me? Yeah, you're... Can, I can see okay. you and hear you just like you're right in the room here. Until I'm new at this. <laughs> and um, you don't have to bend over and talk. We just pick you up whatever tone you choose to talk. I, um, I came, I, was, I studied as a dietitian in uh, Montreal. I am from Montreal. And then I moved to uh, Flintlawn, Manitoba, a northern community. And um, I learned um, more and more about Aboriginal people through these experiences, through living in the North. And one of the things that really struck me um, when I moved to Quinzlon, because I'm from Quebec, and there are like two cultures, there's many cultures in Quebec, but there's prominently, as we know across Canada, two cultures, the Anglophones and the Francophones. But contrary to what we might hear a lot on the news, they really do get along quite nicely, and they're the people themselves, and they mesh, and they mix, and they have fun together. And so it was this, uh, really, um, and I was quite young, quite young. I mean, I was just turning 30 at the time. So it was a new reality for me to, and maybe it was time for me to learn about these realities, but for me to learn that and to see and to feel the walls in Flintlawn, Manitoba, between the uh, mainstream society, the white society, and the Aboriginal people, you could feel that wall. And the longer I lived there, although it may have been that I made friendships with Aboriginal people, maybe that influence, but the longer I lived there, the less I was sensitive to that wall, the less I felt it. But it must have still existed, because the, the prejudice is very, very strong, very strong. And I recently, I have a... Um, I have a woman from Iran living with me. Uh, she's a student. She's a student. And um, she said to me just the other day, she said, why is it, Arlene, I talk to people, I speak to people here from Canada, the young people at the university, and they're all, they're all, they don't have anything, they, they say a lot of negative things about Aboriginal people, and she wanted to know why. And we didn't go into deep discussion on it, but it was a very, very, and I've had other comments like that from people from foreign students, they're observing this among Canadians. Okay, having said that, I moved from Flint, and I did work, um, I did have experience working on reserves in northern Manitoba, and then I moved to uh, this area, and I now work for Blood Tribe. And I was so um, impressed with Blood Tribe, absolutely amazed. First of all, the uh, health center, you would all... Um, it would be a delight for all of you to have a chair because it is, there, across Canada, there are new health centers going up and they're all new and modern, etc. But this particular health center, it is so large and there's so many departments and there's so many trained Aboriginal people, nurses, um, doctors, etc. There, there's so many social workers. There's so many trained Aboriginal people who are working very hard to try to overcome some of these social problems that are existing. And it does have a lot to do with colonization. It has a lot to do with residential school. There's something called intergenerational trauma. And if you're a young person who's pulled from the love of your home into a residential environment where you are not allowed to speak your language, where your hair is as I've been, as I've been, um, as it's been described to me, where your hair has been cut, where you're being told you're a savage, um, and you're only a young person, etc. How can you grow up, and what, how, what can you feel about yourself, and what can you bring back to the world under these circumstances, and what can you pass on to your own children? So these are some of the 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 very. Um, important things that need to be overcome 
but it cannot be done alone. It, ha- it has to have the help and acceptance of other people in the world because you, it, we have to face it, like most people in the world are all the same, really, because we grow up, we love our families, we love our children, and we have to make a living, and we're striving really for very many of the same things. And I would say that it would, it's the time that we start to look at the commonalities instead of the differences to move forward. So that's all I have to say. Yeah. Anybody want to contribute to that? Uh, we've been uh, looking at you on the TV screen, uh, Mark, from uh, Regina. And uh, Mark is uh, just moving uh, from Quebec. He's uh, thoroughly uh, bilingual, as most people are around Ottawa. An Anglophone, and you know, there's lots of uh, bilingual Anglophones now in, in, in Ottawa. Um, I've introduced uh, Mark um, to the class, but and Rhonda, this is uh, Dr. Mark Spooner. He's at the uh, Faculty of Education at the University of Regina. And um, one of the things that we did together uh, the summer I spent uh, in Ontario and Quebec, we um, went to an event where where there's a group of people trying to establish a new Canadian university. And it did come up, why not go to the indigenous people for the charter? You know, you always go to the Crown for a charter. Why not get your corporate legitimacy from, from the Aboriginal sovereign or the, the Aboriginal nation. Um, and uh, so I've invited uh, Dr. Spooner to uh, follow uh, our proceedings and uh, perhaps uh, there will be a class. He's very involved in uh, justice issues and um, trying to get uh, that up and running. He's quite intrigued with uh, this technology and uh, he's an all-around A1 guy. So uh, can I... Um, call upon you to uh, give us a little bit uh, of, uh, of your humanity behind the striking long hair and beard. Uh. <laughs> well, first I'd like to say it's an honor to be with you. Um, can you hear me? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Okay. It's, it's an honor to be here this evening, and I feel uh, as much a student as someone who can contribute. I'm a learner here. I can, I'd like to comment on a few things. One. I felt a sort of apartheid when I moved to Regina between uh, white and native people. You mentioned Flin Swan earlier, and uh, it, it really strikes me as something that is, um, it, it causes me a lot of unrest, and I think that we have to work together, hopefully, to find solutions to that. I, I'm also curious to, uh, about the concept of urban urban reserves and the concept of diabetes and poor neighborhoods and access to grocery stores and wholesome foods. And, and uh, you, you mentioned diabetes earlier, but I'm wondering what's being done. I know here in Regina, I look at North Central, and there are no grocery stores, but lots of fast food outlets. And I wonder how that doesn't contribute to diabetes and just the sheer access and inconvenience of trying to get better foods when uh, Transportation and time may be issues and uh, that kind of thing. Anyone? Is that not an issue? It, it is an issue, but um, it's a wide, it's a broad question. Um, I think that our um, our people that are living in the urban areas actually are are less. Um, they have less access to healthy uh, to healthy foods and to the support of their families. I find that people that live in on on reserve have a large family um, uh, support group, and if somebody is hungry, they can always go and borrow something or go and have food at somebody else's house. So that's always an option for the people in the community here. And as the urban communities develop, there are family clusters and family groups that can do that. But there's many individuals that move into the um, into the urban areas, and they don't have that family support, and they don't have the opportunity to go to somebody else's house when they're hungry, and um, and so that's one of that's actually a cultural thing for us, and that to be able to share um, what we have with people that don't have, and um, I think that actually think that access is a lot harder for people in the urban areas because of that. Even though they're surrounded by people, they still are not going to feel comfortable um, going to visit somebody or having a meal at somebody else's house. 
Um, and definitely the the um, the access to Kentucky Fried Chicken and all of those fast food places contributes highly to the development of diabetes. Um, you know, and teaching. Yeah. And I think that um, I think that your question is is um, is well placed in that we are going to be seeing we're we're seeing actually a new phase I think in colonization in that. Before, things were very concentrated on reserve communities and what was going on within rural Aboriginal communities. Um, now we're seeing that the, the um, capacity has far overwhelmed what we have on and people are moving into the urban areas. And I think that Canadians now are very concerned. Canadians in general are very concerned because the problem isn't out there anymore. It's not on the reserve anymore. It's here in their, our own community. It's, I'm, I'm just generalizing, but I think that the concern is there because we're seeing they're, they're seeing it visualized. They're seeing more and more um, of the crack cocaine, uh, crystal meth. They're seeing more of the violence, and I think that that might be one of the concerns that, or why we're seeing some of the urban areas becoming more concerned about the Aboriginal population because they're afraid of it. And I think it, it's just boiled over. It's boiled beyond the point where we, as Aboriginal people, can control it within our own capacity. It's boiled over into the Canadian um, uh, dominant population. And, um, and so it isn't just our problem anymore. It's become everybody's problem. And, it's got to, and, the, and the way to deal with it is, is going to have to take uh, partnership. I'd like to follow up, if I could, just for a few minutes on the partnership. I'm from Ottawa. I'm not from government, but I'm from the city of Ottawa, and I'm new here to the West. And I wonder what spaces there are for, say, a white middle-class professor to, to make contributions and to help form these coalitions and to learn. Uh, what would you say to me as for advice? <laughs> Esther's pointing at me. Uh, uh, so many thoughts are going through uh, through my mind here. Let me just, uh, I'm in charge of the, uh, I'm, I'm framing the different shots here, so uh, just while I think, okay, let's, uh, um, well, I, you know, I worked in uh, Native Studies since 1982, and uh, it has been, you know, an tremendously rich, thrilling experience in many ways. Um, the uh, life has unfolded the way the life of Canada has unfolded. Uh, Canada is no longer part of the British Empire, and yet our laws are part of the British Empire. The whole process of trying to extract Canada from the constitutional structure of the British Empire to come up with a made-in-Canada constitution uh, and then if we're going to come up with that, well, what about treaties? What about the promises made for as long as the sun shines and the water flows? And who's going to make those arguments? And who's going to get the documentation? And, and so, you know, there suddenly was presented a, an enormous uh, venue, a theater, for the kind of things that professors uh, do. And, you know, it, it turned out to be a very, it wasn't just an abstract exercise. You, you get to know people, and, and your heart and soul gets into it. I remember when we went down to the first constitutional conference, and I put up posters for Native Studies on our van that we rented. And uh, and uh, Howard Bob was uh, he he had murdered a person. He was out out of jail, um, and uh, and his wife Rose. Um, they'd they'd teamed up. I was living in the Native halfway house at the time. And I do remember, as we went down to Ottawa, it, there was this sense of, you know, we're, we're reinventing Canada. And uh, maybe we can uh, define Canada in such a way that we can overcome some of this legacy of marginalization and dehumanizing people and, and criminalizing people. You know, it, it, it comes right down to the fact that this legacy of, of marginalization and, and treating people as deviants uh, it's reflected in the way our jails are structured. The jails in Western Canada are full of Native people. And so right in that trip was 
two folks who didn't, you know, right out of that experience. And, uh, and going through those four years, you know, hoping that maybe there can be a deal on self-government. Maybe there can be something that changes significantly in the structure of, 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 of our laws, of our country, in our minds even. Um, and uh, it didn't, it didn't work, you know, there was no resolution. And uh, Rose was run over. She was drunk coming out of a tavern and killed. And Howard uh, had a, another tragedy, and uh, and uh, you know you're, you 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 lose a lot of confidence in your society, uh, and yet and yet uh, you know we we're living in a country that in a sense is a new country, and how do we learn to live in this country as as people whose parents, my my own dad, as I mentioned. You know, it comes from Ireland. I'm, a, I'm the son of an immigrant. How do you naturalize yourself, assimilate yourself to, to being in this place? And I, I don't think there's any choice, but in, in, in some way, Aboriginal people have to be our teachers. And unless uh, the country can kind of resolve itself to that and, and order itself around the, the, this sort of fundamental relationship, if it can't get that relationship right, then how can it get any of the other relationships that build upon it? And we do have a strong basis in treaties and in all the history that led up to the idea that there's a little alliance, that Indians aren't subjects of the crown, they're allies of the crown, that Canada was defended through Indian participation in the War of 1812, for instance, when the, those who would conquer Canada and annex Canada and make Canada disappear, terminate Canada, was the United States. And somehow, how can we go into this history, go into this constitution? And, and you know, t to me, that's, that's the hope for the country. And, and, and then on that relationship is the, the French, the English, the multicultural dimension, all the, all the, the immigra immigrants. What are the immigrants going to be assimilated into? I mean, one of the great ironies, it's not an irony, but you talk about in spite of the high morbidity, in spite of you know the, the the high rates of death and people dying young in Indian country, it's still the part of the population that has an actual positive growth. The main you know the the mainstream population, Canadians do not replicate themselves. Every two Canadians make on average 1.6 people. So and this is this is a phenomenon throughout the the rich world. The uh, it seems that once you achieve a certain level of prosperity, people are just aren't willing to, to uh, well, I guess it has a lot to do with pensions and the fact that if you're poor, you know, your, your, your children may be your support in, in the future. So, so in fact, in Saskatchewan, Saskatchewan is really rapidly becoming an Aboriginal province. People are moving out of Saskatchewan, but not the Aboriginal people. And the percentage of the overall population Saskatchewan that is Aboriginal is growing, and by you know by by two, 2050, I think we'll be well over half of, of, of Saskatchewan if present patterns continue. So uh, those are I, that's an effort to. Tony, what about, what about, yeah. <laughs> talking too much here. You know, we we may not have a choice, Tony. Yeah. So <laughs> <smart> thinking, you <laughs> know. Uh, I'll tell you. In the treaties, it states uh, as long as the water flows. But I'm in discussions with the uh, government of Alberta as leadership because we're we are coming to a period where water water is going to be a very very important commodity. The government is telling us uh, how we use water, the, the quantity that we use is not going to be sufficient for us uh, much longer. There's going to be water allocation, water quotas and stuff like that, so treaty or no treaty, we are going to be forced into that. One of the things uh, we, you mentioned was the urban reserve. In our discussions with uh, the city of Lethbridge, and we, we have done our homework, We've done our research. We spend approximately anywhere between 60 to 75 million dollars in our surrounding, if not more, in our surrounding uh, uh, little municipalities, the cities, the border towns, and everything like that. And it's like that for most First Nations. 
So any government transfer dollars that, that, that is being brought into the reserve is always being spent off the reserve. So one of the things that we've uh, mentioned to the city of Lethbridge, and I know Saskatoon has an urban reserve, and one of the, uh, perhaps not argument, but perhaps one, one of the position is, we spend a lot of uh, business in your cities. First Nation uh, people are big business, very big business. And that's what we want to capture. We, we're telling the city, we spend this much. We want to be able to partner up and, you know, get some of those benefits in regards to economic development, you know. Going back to your question on how can we, uh, yourself as an individual, I think it begins by understanding each other. And we, I, I will be the first uh, uh, person to say as well too, we are prejudiced in a lot of ways ourselves too, and that's because there's a lot of uh, lack of communication, there's a lot of lack of understanding. If you go back to our position, you know, it was the white settlers that dominated us. You know, that, that's been kind of in the back of our mind. So with the Indian Residential School, there's been a, a period, you know, where, where we are at a point that the churches and the governments have come forward and have said, you know, we apologize for introducing that whole concept of assimilation. We were wrong in, in that aspect, you know. So we are in a forgiven period right now. And we are asking our people, you know, we need to understand what we're both about. You know, so that's par partially some of our responsibilities to each other. I need to understand uh, you, your identity, what, ma what makes you tick, and we need to understand each other so we can help ourselves. If you take a look at what, where we're at and our relationship in the global system and all of the wars that are happening, mm. you know, we need to work together. If you take a look at addictions, it costs the government millions and millions of dollars if we don't address addiction. FASD, it, uh, part of my information given to me is for every uh, FASD child, it'll take almost $2 million to spend on that individual providing services. So it's costing us money and resources. And that's going back to what Dr. Tailfeathers do we need to partner up. Let tribe have a good system with the Chinook Health Region. We've got a memorandum of understanding where we collaborate, we exchange information, uh, best practices, you know, we help each other support their expertise and stuff like that. You know, so that's a start, you know, for us, you know. And so we, we're, we're able to uh, have people like Arlene come in with her expertise, work with us, you know. And the people that have worked with us uh, from off the reserve, once they have uh, the experience in working with us, you know, they've got a different concept and they seem to understand where our issues are, you know. I have a lot of pro uh, trouble understanding why our, my own people still are affected by alcohol as well, too. I don't understand that uh, as well, too, in some ways. But I live here, I see the kids, I see the poverty, the lack of housing, the lack of employment, stuff like that. And what we're, our position to the government is, listen, education is the number one tool that is going to lead us out of this situation. It has to be, and, and we're, we're asking the government, you know, allow more resources to come in, into the system. All we're doing is we're, we've got a Band-Aid approach. We've got 60% of our, our, our students are high-risk high kids special education kids, you know, and we're expending so much dollars. So we want resources at the front end so we can introduce more prevention services, you know, rather than just doing the intervention and, and just taking, uh, bringing them along, you know, and spending resources, not much of a life for them, you know. So you and I need... well with your wellness model. Your wellness exactly. model for health is just in well... Exactly. What you're saying fits in well with your wellness model to help. Yes, yes, Rhonda. I wanted to, uh, um, one of the things I wanted to mention is just you you asked how, how yourself, how you would be a healthy community like ours. 
and I think you're in an excellent position in, in something so simple as misconceptions that... Can you repeat? I said something so simple is, uh, is misconceptions that that the non-native person we have regarding, um, regarding Thank you. Our, can you hear me? Yeah. I'm sorry. Good. Okay. Okay. Did you hear what I just said? Misconception. Something, uh, misconception? Yes. That the non-native people have of native communities. I think you're in an excellent pos uh, position um, once that you come out here or any other Native community and get to know the communities, but just just simple basic things is misconceptions that I know um, mainstream has, and that's simple things such as Indians don't pay for their houses, Indians don't pay income tax, Indians don't pay for health care, and Indians don't pay for education. Those are all misconceptions. Um, I think. Anybody who thinks that needs to to find out what actually how it actually works, because we have the same system that the mainstream has, only on a reserve type of setting. We anybody who works pays for their homes. There are certain meds medications that aren't provided that we pay for, providing that you're working and you have an income. Those who aren't get the same assistance that those in mainstream would get if they weren't working. They couldn't pay their rent, they would go and get assistance. If they couldn't pay um, their Medicare, they would. And that's basically how it works here. But I can see that it would def definitely help bridge the gap between our non-native neighbors. If simple things like that we're discussed. I see uh, Richard and I and James Moore was also uh, in frame, but Richard, it's Richard, right? Yeah. Uh, I was going to ask a question about um, regarding about um, what the biggest problem. But I think the chief already addressed that, saying that it's education. My question is, what what is the Canadian government offering the native community for schooling uh, so far? Like, I'm interested because I'm not really too sure about it, so I would like to know. Um, there is there are a number of can you hear me? Yep. There are a number of um uh, there are a number of ways that education that um, Aboriginal people can attain education. On our reserves there's two systems. There's a public um, school system and there's also our own um, schooling system here, our own education system here on the on the reserve. Um, the choice is up to the family, the choice is up to the child of which which type of school they want to attend. They can attend public school in the smaller communities around here, Cardston, Fort McLeod, McGrath, Lethbridge, they all have um, children from our reserve which who attend those schools. Our numbers help to boost the, um, the public school systems in the communities around us and a lot of people don't realize that but many teachers are employed because our children go to their schools. Many, um, and I just want to make another example, and many of the, the health professionals are employed and are, well, are gainfully employed because our people are sick. Our people occupy a good portion of the hospital in Cardston. Many of the people are in um, and use the health care system in Lethbridge. And many, many of the healthcare professionals and people in the support services are employed because our people are not healthy. And, um, Getting back to education, our children can go to the public schools and um, and learn the public system as um, as everybody else does. We also have uh, the systems on reserve who have the same the, the the education system on the reserve require the same curriculum as the reserves. I mean the schools off reserve. The difference is that the the schools on reserve also include a greater portion of language and. Um, and culture in the teachings, and many of the people that teach our children are our own people. A good portion of our teachers, I would say, 50 to 60 percent of the teachers in our education system are from our tribe, and speak. Many of them speak our language and teach with the language. Um, and just having the presence of our people in the school system helps to keep that village um, 
that village identity where you probably have heard about it takes a village to raise a child. Well, our people have often the the responsibility of um, of raising children does not always just fall on one family. It's up to the aunts, the uncles, and the extended family to help to raise the child and to um, to discipline the child. So when the child is in a uh, on a res in a reserve school, they belong more to a village of people that are watching out for them. But the education system um, on the reserve is fully funded by the federal government, and um, the transportation system is a school busing system, and it's and it's owned and run by our own people, which um, transports children to either the reserve schools or off-reserve schools. Um, from kindergarten to grade 12, the the, the schooling system is um, is of the choice of the family and the child, and then our people can attend um, secondary school, post-secondary school, um, and they must attain the same um, uh, the same level of education in order to get into those institutions, as you all know, um, the same as everybody else. Um, and, um, and so the education, edu education is accessible if you have family support, if you have, um, if you have the belief that you can do it, and um, and I think one of the responsibilities of the people outside the reserve, uh, to people on reserve or to Aboriginal people, is to encourage them and let them know that it is a possibility. Because I myself, when was I was in high school, I wanted to go to medical school. My um, counselor told me, "You don't have the ability to do it. It's too hard to do. Don't do it." So I didn't go to medical school. I didn't follow that route because I didn't believe that I could really do it. And um, after a series of events and um, and things that I that um, that I did experience, I knew I could do it. And um, I think that it's important that people off reserve encourage children to follow their dreams and to know that it is possible to be anything you want to be. Um, so. Um is also like post-secondary also fully funded too, or is it no? It's not. It's not fully funded. It. Um, we do have federal dollars um, that support uh, students when they get into post-secondary institutions. Um, it's not fully funded. Their tuition, um, to a certain extent, is funded, um, and some students do have um, monthly support from the education system. But we do not have, or the or the funding that comes from the federal government obviously doesn't allow for everybody to go to school. So many of our students, because they want to do it, and they may have run out of funding, or they may have not qualified for funding for one reason or another, are on student loans, or are helped by their families. And many families are paying tuition themselves, um, and many families are supporting their children to go to school. So. Um, it's it's not clearly cut, but under given. Yeah. I noticed that uh, Charles and Rhonda you know, have a ten-year-old child in the in the room here, and six-year-old, and uh, probably a time to think about uh, summing up. And uh, uh, let me just uh, call attention to uh, the paper I distributed last week, and. Uh, my, my, my own methodology, of course, has been to build from the idea of indigenous people in Canada, in North America, Western Hemisphere of the world, to look at uh, the colonization that's taken place locally, but then to think of it as a global phenomena. So I'm kind of extrapolating, and the paper that I gave at uh, the Law and Society series at UBC in uh, 2004, I distributed it. It's called From British Columbia to Kurdistan, Iraq and the West Bank, Aboriginal title as an emerging concept in international law and global geopolitics. So maybe this uh, session here would uh, help you to put that into context. I also uh, uh, distributed uh, a, an excerpt from uh, Volume 2 of The Bowl with One Spoon. Um, and in that excerpt, uh, the Bangza Moro people, the Islamic, uh, the indigenous peoples who who have uh, taken on Islam and they've come up with uh, this identity of themselves as banks of moral people. So I didn't, haven't gotten to that yet. 
but of course we're, we're doing a class and we've got a curriculum to develop, but very rich material. I want to uh, thank you from the bottom of my heart, really. And uh, I, uh, I thought uh, perhaps I could uh, just put out one final idea, Chief uh, Weaselhead. I heard in, in your uh, talking about the need for responses to addictions, this word spirituality came up. Uh, and uh, it's a word that is uh, it's a, it's a deep word. It's a word that uh, could be read in a lot of ways. Um, we've talked about losing the buffalo as a food source. But, of course, the buffalo wasn't just a food source. The buffalo uh, has spirit, has psychology. And to, to build your life around the cycle of an animal and to internalize the spirit of that animal in your own psychology, in your own prayers, in your own uh, ideas of yourself, to, to, lose that, to lose that animal. It's not just to lose a food source. It's, 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 it's traumatic. It's it, it obviously created, well, not obvious, I guess, it, but it, the implications of it um, are, are immense. Uh, this word spirituality, I was wondering if in the final remark, you could connect it to your what you're talking about about your nation and your people. Well, uh, from from our teachings from our elders, you know, uh, we do have uh, what we refer to as Grandma uh, Sinatoni, and it's a remarkable charter of Indigenous people. You know where it states that the Creator gave us this land to protect, to sustain ourselves. And our elders have taught us early in life, you know, that there is a higher power, a higher spiritual connection to us that gave us all of, of these wonderful gifts, you know. And it is our responsibility as, uh, not only as indigenous people, but peoples uh, from all walks of life, it's our responsibility to uh, to uh, take care of these gifts uh, from our Creator, and uh, part of our part of our definition about spirituality is that we are connected to the land, we are connected to each other, you know, and that there is a purpose for us in this life, and there is a life beyond that, you know. So our elders, part of their principles, you know, in regards to respecting each other building healthy relationships, you know, taking care of the gifts, uh, uh, taking care of uh, our children, our family, and our connections, you know. So every day, you know, in the teachings of our elders, every morning, every evening when they pray, it is about blessing ourselves, it is about wishing a long life, happy life, uh, good relationships, good upbringing of our, our children, you know, safety, you know, all of those type of things, you know. So every time that we, we gather in ceremonies, these are, are the teachings of our elders, you know. And from uh, early in life, you know, uh, and I don't want to expand too much on the Indian residential school, but there was a period that our elders and our spiritual leaders had to go underground, you know, to continue to uh, practice our beliefs, our concepts, about nature, about harmony, about balance in life. We had to go underground in regards to that, you know. But resiliency and, and the teachings of the elders are Today, you know, anything that we develop is based on those teachings. Our departments, you know, the way that we uh, communicate to each other, you know. Unfortunately, all of these other things have, have come into play and we're, we're slowly beginning to see the disintegration of family units, of the community, of our spiritual elders. But a lot of it is now s slowly starting to come back. You know, and I think uh, we're going to realize, you know, down the future, you know, that the uh, elders are, are, are going to come back and, uh, and be strong again. Thank, thank you, Charlie. I um, just I can't add a whole lot more to that because I have a very respectful, um, um, or I'm very respectful of, um, of Charlie's opinions as our chief and also um, 
in his experience in life. Um, what I will say is that I think that in the beginning when, when I talked about um, the, the change in or, or loss of self-determination, I think that spirituality is a very, very strong thing for, um, for most people and for Aboriginal people. And because we believe that we're connected to the ground, to the earth, and that we are stewards and caretakers of the earth, and, and likewise the earth takes care of us, um, that interruption in that relationship has caused us illness. And um, I can see that in, in the line of work that I do, I can see that when people are dying, when people have lost somebody, when there's a birth, where there's anything that's very close to your heart and very emotional, very um, very life-changing, most people resort to... Um, to the um, to the strength of their spirituality and and they'll resort to the first the first teachings that they have. So you see many people that might have gone to residential school that are Catholic or Anglican or whatever um, Christian religion they are. When they lose somebody, um, when we lose somebody to death, when we lose somebody traumatically, we turn to the elders and we turn to our spirituality to help us cope with those situations. So I think our spirituality is so close to um, to who are, we are as individuals and so close to our hearts that it, it, it cannot be anything else but part of our health as well. And, um, and I'm seeing that young people that are, um, that are involved in drugs or alcohol will turn to um, our traditional sun dance and to our elders for teachings to help them get through and to cope with their addictions. Um, people that are... Um, trying to control their um, their diabetes, they turn to spirituality as well. So I think that it's a very important um, thing for Aboriginal people and um, and most people, I'm not saying everybody, but for most people, it's a question of, uh, it, it will be a question in everybody's life at some point. See you next week. Thank you very much, Alyssa. Thank you all. Thank you very Thank you. much. It's been an honor. Bye-bye.